I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This is a very special episode of The Truth of the Matter because we're talking with Steve Silberman, who is one of the most interesting people that I've ever come across. And Steve is here today to talk about the late David Crosby and his relationship with David Crosby. But first, let me tell you a little bit about who Steve is. Steve is the best-selling author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, a New York Times bestseller, award-winning book that has really helped people all across this universe really understand what autism is and the history of it. Steve was also is an acclaimed writer who was the head science writer for Wired. He's contributed to the New York Times, the New Yorker, the FT, the Boston Globe, the MIT Technology Review. He's a wonderful writer, and he's also an expert in music, and specifically in the music of David Crosby, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and The Grateful Dead, where if you have seen Amir Barlev's amazing documentary on Amazon Prime called Long Strange Trip, you will see Steve interviewed prominently. Steve's written books about The Grateful Dead. He's won gold records by writing liner notes and producing albums with The Grateful Dead. So he's really, like I said, one of the most interesting people I've ever come across. Steve, that's a long introduction, but I had to get it all out there so people know who you are. And then the final thing I'll say is you brought David Crosby into the life in a very real way of many people that I know through your podcast, Freak Flag Flying on Osiris Media, which is an amazing podcast. There's two seasons of it. I strongly recommend anybody who's a fan of podcasts and certainly a fan of David Crosby to listen to it because it's one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. And that's why I wanted to bring you on today. And I really appreciate you coming on, Steve, because David Crosby was a really big deal and not just in the music world, wasn't it? That's absolutely true. And thank you so much for the generous introduction. But yeah, David Crosby was, uh, you know, I heard a friend of his recently describe him as a force of nature. He really was. He was politically engaged. He was committed to the transformation of society in humanistic directions. And he, you know, sort of made that vow early on when he was a coffeehouse folk singer, singing songs that inspired the civil rights movement. And he, he never stopped hoping for a humanitarian transformation of the world. And he definitely put messages into his music to make that happen and to create a community which almost naturally like flocked around the beautiful music that he was making. You know, there were so many people who sort of grew up listening to Crosby, Souls, Nash & Young and then took jobs or made commitments to make the world better. And we are all the beneficiaries of those efforts. You know, Steve, one thing I neglected to say in my introduction of you is that, you know, in, among the other things that you've done, you were once a teaching assistant to Allen Ginsberg. Yes, that's true. And I'll, I'll tell you a wonderful story that David told me. Allen Ginsberg was a beat poet. He was a friend of Jack Kerouac's. He appears in many of Kerouac's books. And Alan is most famous for writing Howl, which really sort of blew through the iron curtains of the 1950s and was really a, a you know a rallying cry 
for compassion and and acceptance of people who had been marginalized in society, like junkies and gay people. Alan was gay. And apparently, you know, David grew up in Southern California. You know, he probably had the same prejudices against gay people that most of his peers had. But when David was with the Birds, he played, a, you know, a kind of legendary series of gigs at Ciro's in L.A. And Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky, who was Allen's lifelong partner, in fact, they were the first sort of gay married people because they had taken marriage vows themselves, even though it was illegal. David told me that they would dance like children at the bird shows. And that was the revelation that gay people were people for David and that he should not be prejudiced against gay people. And in fact, Alan and Peter were delightful. And so Alan was on David's radar from the very beginning. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. And of course, Alan's dancing was pretty legendary to begin with, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You can see footage of him dancing at the Human Being in, I believe it was 67, in Golden Gate Park, about five blocks from where I'm sitting. You can see him dancing in an Indian shmata uh, to the Grateful Dead playing Viola Lee Blues. <laughs> and he, you know, he looks completely happy. Well, you know, you've been around Jerry Garcia. You've been around Phil Lesh. You've been around Bob Weir. You've been around David Crosby and many other musicians. Crosby, you know, one of the things that I always think of when I think of him and I don't think about this with many other people other than maybe Jerry Garcia, is that he was, Crosby was singular, wasn't it? He was like one of a yeah, kind. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I should point out that, yes, I met Jerry Garcia, and yes, I've met Lesh and Bobby, but I had a singular relationship with David. He was really my best friend other than my husband. You know, I sort of keep waiting for my phone to ring so that, you know, I'll look down and see David Crosby's name, and, you know, I'll pick up and he'll say, Death sucks, man, <laughs> or something like that. Death is really weird, you know, yeah. um, because we were kind of in that sort of communication. Like, I almost had to put out of my mind that he was this legendary dude who had, you know, transformed pop music, not just by doing his own music, among other things. And this is something that only people who've listened to my podcast really fully appreciate, is that David turned the Beatles onto Indian music. So think about that. David brought Ravi Shankar, you know, vinyl LPs to London to give to George Harrison. And that's what turned the Beatles onto Indian music. And just ask yourself, how different would the pop music landscape be if the Beatles had never started experimenting with these sounds from other cultures? Like David helped give birth to world music through the Beatles. And hardly anybody even knows he did that. And that was just one of many things he did. Well, yeah. And, you know, the birds were sort of supposed to be the American Beatles. And of course, you know, David's one of the writers of, you know, one of their amazing songs, Eight Miles High, which brought in the Raga Indian influences, exactly. you know, predating the Beatles on Revolver with Tomorrow Never Knows and, and those kinds right. of songs. Since we're talking about George Harrison and David turning George on, there's a song on David's record, his, his first solo record, which is a masterpiece. And I want to ask you about that record. It's called If I Only Could Remember My Name. There's a song on that record, I believe it's Laughing, where yes. David is, is writing to George because he didn't want to really talk to George about 
Indian music and Indian culture and the way George was buying into it. Can you tell me what that was all about? Yeah, I will. It's it's actually not that, you know, David had any problem with George getting into Indian music or Indian culture. He had a specific problem with the Beatles worshiping the Maharishi as a guy who had all the answers. David was was very distrusting of anybody who claimed to have all the answers or claimed to know God personally while other people didn't. He was very skeptical about that. And he, you know, in a very gentle way, because he didn't want to be so presumptuous as to tell George how to live or something like that, he sent this message that, like, maybe that guy is not all that he, you know, is cracked up to be. And that's certainly something that the Beatles themselves realized because they left Rishikesh, the Maharishi's uh, retreat in India, you know, not as devotees, but as skeptics. And so David was just sending a message. And I want to point out that that song is not only the emotional highlight of David's best album, if I could only remember my name, but it was sort of a high watermark for almost everybody who appears on that track. Joni Mitchell sings two parallel harmonies at the end that are just unbelievable. I actually have them isolated on my computer. And it's like, it literally is like an angel singing from heaven. Jerry Garcia, who only played pedal steel for just a few years. Obviously, you know, he played guitar for his whole life, but he learned the pedal steel. It was very difficult for him to play, difficult for him to keep in tune. But the the pedal steel track on Laughing was Jerry's own favorite pedal steel track. And it has, there's a distinctive cry in Jerry's tone on that song that is just, it takes the heart out of my chest. It's unbelievable. And for me, I know I'm like obsessing about this, but for me, there's a moment in that song at the end of the choruses when they all sort of sing together this harmonic rise. It's almost like, a sister to the Beatles thing at the end of Day in the Life. But it's beautiful voices rising in unison. To me, that moment is the apex of the 60s. It's like the moment when the 60s won forever, no matter what happened afterwards. And I wrote the liner notes to the 50th anniversary re-release of that album. And I spoke to Phil Lesh, and he talked about the spirit of cooperation that was happening at Wally Hyder's studio while they were recording that album, David could have, because of Deja Vu in part, David could afford unlimited studio time. He could be there for weeks on end. So it wasn't like, oh my God, we have to get down to the studio, we have an hour. They would just hang out there, like day and night. So they were able to create tracks out of even spontaneous jams. There's a song on that record called What Are Their Names? And the instrumental track of What Are Their Names was just simply a jam that erupted in the studio with, you know, Jerry and Phil and a bunch of other people. And David was on a plane and he wrote a set of lyrics. And when he landed, like he, you know, or when he got back to the studio or whatever, he heard that jam and the lyrics just by pure synchronicity happened to fit perfectly with that jam. And so there was a lot of spontaneous stuff happening in that studio. And that album is just singular. It is, there's nothing else like it. It's so beautiful. There really isn't. And, and, and to listen to Laughing 
is a transcendent moment indeed. Uh, you know, I'm going to play a little bit of it for our listeners. If I Could Only Remember My Name, came out in 71, and it was panned by critics like Robert Christigau, who didn't like it. I don't understand how anybody could listen to that record and not instantly realize that it was a masterpiece. What Later happened? in life, of course, what? it was recognized <laughs> yeah. as a masterpiece. But what, what, what was it about it when it came out? Were people just not ready for it? Yeah, I think they were just not ready for it. I mean, there were a couple of songs that had no words, and they weren't just instrumentals either. They were David singing scat, you could say, but that hardly expresses the beauty of it. What David told me was that he thought of himself as almost like doing like horn arrangements, like Miles Davis, in a sense, with his voice on those tracks. You know, even David Geffen, who was David Crosby's agent at the time, called up Ahmet Erdogan, the head of Atlantic Records. And said, oh, my God, I'm listening to this new, you know, Crosby album. There's all these instrumentals. He's like too lazy to write words, you know. And Ahmed apparently appeased him by saying, don't worry, David, we've already shipped a million. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the album came out. The people who were really, really trashed, just slagged that album, crapped all over it, were Robert Criscow, who was a tremendously powerful New York rock critic, and Lester Bangs. And they basically built their own cool by disdaining other people's stuff. And, but I'll tell you what annoys me. <laughs> you know, when I was writing the liner notes, I looked up all those, t you know, terrible reviews. And I thought, well, you know, for one thing, you guys are all dead and David is still making music. <laughs> but, the, but the other thing is like, now the whole world knows that if I can only remember my name is a masterpiece. When I say the whole world, am I exaggerating? No, I am not. The Pope put, if I could only remember my name, uh, on his list of favorite albums, uh, which is amazing. This is Pope Benedict, correct? Yes, exactly. Pope Benedict, who is not, you know, known as a mellow hippie. But um, <laughs> it's extraordinary that he listed it as one of his favorite records. And the record, it's not a religious record, but the music makes you feel like there's a godlike presence on the record, if you will. I agree with you. I agree. Yes, there's something about that record. So what annoyed me was, you know, there's the equivalent today of Robert Christgau is the guy Bob Lefsitz. He's got a famous newsletter everybody reads. Sure. Everybody sends me his, his newsletters. And yesterday, I'm like reading the, the latest Bob Lefsitz column, and he's saying like, except for if I could only remember my name, the CSNY solo albums were amazing. And I'm like, what? You know, like he's still trashing it. Like all <laughs> Years later, but David, you know, was very, I remember in the 80s, liking If I Could Only Remember My Name was very much the minority opinion. You know, it was considered the example of hippie self-indulgence and, you know, okay, boomer, you know, basically. And it was reviled. But, you know, me and my crazy friends who loved it, 
we sort of like kept the flame, you know, burning for that album. And now everybody knows the same rock rags that trashed it, put it on their 50 best songs of all times list. So we won and the music won. And there still is nothing like that album. And one of the things I'm most proud of in my own career, which most people don't know, is that I was able to resurrect a song that had been entirely forgotten that was recorded for that album by Jerry Garcia and David Crosby. It's just the two of them together with multi-track vocals and multi-track guitars. It's an instrumental song called Kids and Dogs, but with vocals like Tam High and Song With No Words. And that song was like forgotten. David tried to put it on a solo album in 1980 that was never released because he was so messed up uh, behind freebase cocaine. And then it was just sort of forgotten. By the time I got to know him, he was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I think we already put that out. No, you hadn't. <laughs> so I, I worked for 10 years to get that track out to the world. And now it is out to the world. It was on David's box set Voyage and a bonus track on the 50th anniversary re-release of If I Could Only Remember My Name. And it's just, you know, if any music is played at my funeral, it should be that. It's that beautiful. It really is. Another song that you brought to the world through your podcast, it's in episode four of Freak Flag Flying, is The Wall Song. And it's with this extended jam that Jerry Garcia does for about like 10 minutes after David's done singing. And it's really one of the greatest Jerry Garcia studio performances that you'll ever hear. that track is it's the master take from a wonderful album called Graham Nash David Crosby which came out in I think 71 but on the record it fades out right after the vocals so the track that I leaked has a rough vocal so it's not as nice as the vocal on the album but then as you point out there's this incredible jam afterwards and the thing that interested me about that jam is that it's Jerry leading the band, always sounding extremely purposeful and narrative. Like, that's why when people say, were the Grateful Dead a jam band? That does not express it, because they're not just riffing or jamming. They're going somewhere. And they're going somewhere because Garcia was, you know, the headlight on the northbound train, as he sang in a song. And so he was always driving towards something that made the whole thing sound very purposeful. And so you hear this incredible jam evolving through almost natural cycles, like the tides of uh, incredible melodic invention. And, you know, Nash is on piano. It's, it's unbelievable. That track is unbelievable. And the truth of the matter is, I couldn't even convince David to release it. Because he thought it was too long. Right. But so I leaked it, you know, and I told him I was gonna. And you did such a service by doing that because now we can all hear it and enjoy it and understand it. And it, it plays into what I think David really 
described very well when you asked him about the Grateful Dead. He talked about the dead as, you know, having a long conversation with each other, but he compared their music to Dixieland. That was really interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And in the Grateful Dead documentary, Long Strange Trip, that you mentioned earlier, Jerry Garcia says that he learned that from bluegrass. He explains early on in that movie, he says, in bluegrass, the instruments talk to each other. Yeah. And so that's what he was doing. And that's what David called Electric Dixieland. And that's also why, interestingly enough, David did not think that many of his performances with the Grateful Dead, when he was actually on stage with the Grateful Dead, were great. That's why I think that wall song is great. David felt he was like a fifth wheel when he was on stage with the dead because they were such an organic machine that could talk to each other and understood each other's language even before they spoke musically. And so David just felt like he was an extra guy, you know, but that's what's so great about that wall song. It's like David and Graham completely integrated into the dead minus Weir. Yeah. Which, you know, David was basically a rhythm guitarist and so was Weir. Right. So it's understandable why... The one time it worked was when Weir wasn't there. You know, David's guitar playing, really underrated. Very. It was like Bob Weir, very distinctive rhythm guitarist who could set the stage or the studio on fire with just a few notes. Yes. One of the joys of seeing David with Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young or with his own bands of younger players was watching him incite creativity in his bandmates. What he loved to do is to stand right in front of somebody who was like playing a lead and you can see David's eager face sort of entreating them like, go for it, just go for it, blow the roof off. You know, Neil and Stephen were obviously the sort of firepower, you know, live electric CSNY. But you can see how David's incitement to get out there and to blow even harder really increased the musical intensity. And so David was almost like a fan on stage of the people he was playing with. That's a really great way to describe it. And I never thought of it that way, but I did see CSNY play. This was in Washington, D.C., you know, maybe 15 years ago when they got back together. And you could see the joy that David had by watching Neil, by watching Stephen Stills, by harmonizing with all of them, but really just digging the way they all sounded together. You could really see that. Absolutely. And I want to make an important point here, which is that everybody was constantly saying, like, when is the reunion of CSNY going to happen? You know, or you go to see, you know, David Crosby with the Sky Trails band and where's Neil? Truth of the matter is, when David was playing with reunited CSNY for the Y2K tour or whatever, those tours you know, it was like Madame Tussauds House of Woodstock. Like, you know, they they had their moments, you know. But they were basically nostalgia tours, yeah, you know, yeah. and nostalgia audiences, you know, aging boomers with their children. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, know? I went with my parents. Um, right, exactly. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, yeah, I went with my mom to see CSN at the Fillmore, and it was one of the best nights of our life. But what David really wanted to be doing was to be making new music. And he didn't start doing that until he formed a band with his newly discovered son, James Raymond. I think it was in the early 90s or late 80s, perhaps. But with James Raymond, his son, and Jeff Pivar, a very gifted guitarist, David started creating tons of new music. And it was fantastic new music. 
I remember he, I remember when David had just met James for the first time, there was one night when he took me from backstage at CSN to the tour bus and he popped a cassette in a boombox. And it was a song called Morrison, which is the first song on the first CPR album. About Jim Morrison. Right. It's about Jim Morrison. And I said to David, when I heard, I said, David, that's the best song that Steely Dan never wrote. (laughs) And he loved that comment. Because what I didn't even really know was that he was a huge Steely Dan fan. You know, one of the last times I saw David, he was sitting in with Steely Dan in New York playing wooden ships who played the hell out of it. You know, and and that was another moment when Crosby's musicality transcended what people would think of it. Like they would think, oh, if there's anybody who's, you know, thinks Crosby, Stills and Nash is like stupid kitsch or something, it would be Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. They were mutual admirers. Donald Fagan wrote the lyrics to one of the songs on one of David's recent albums. So, you know, David had very wide ears for everything from Bulgarian choral music to Joni Mitchell, who he discovered. Can I tell you that story? Yeah, please do. Because I know details that nobody knows. So David is in Coconut Grove. He'd been thrown out of the birds, and he'd also sort of wild his way out of his contract with, I think, Clive Davis by saying, oh, I'm all washed up. Release me from my contract so he could join Crosby, Sills, and Nash. So David walks into a coffee house and sees the most beautiful woman that he's ever seen in his life singing the most beautiful music he's ever heard in his life. (laughs) And, you know, he, like, practically fainted. So it turned out that Joni was there. This is the part that hardly anyone knows. Joni was there because she'd been rejected by the New York record companies. They had sent around a demo tape of all the big record companies in New York. Everybody passed on it, and they passed on it in a very interesting way. They would say, well, you know, folk music is passe. This stuff isn't going to sell. But do you mind if I keep the tape for my wife? (laughs) So they they knew that somebody might like it, you know, but they didn't believe it enough to sign the paper. So David, you know, basically rescued Joni Mitchell from obscurity and rejection, uh, convinced her to move out to L.A. She actually lived in his house, I believe, where the house he was uh, living in with B. Mitchell Reed, a famous hip DJ in L.A. And he got her not just her first contract, but a contract that gave her an enormous amount of creative control over her own career. So they couldn't mess up her record with, you know, a bunch of extraneous BS. If you listen to Judy Collins' records of the time, like, yeah, they're beautiful, but, you know, some of them have, like, strings and blah, blah, blah. David knew that all Joni needed was her guitar or her piano. And so she got an incredibly good contract that enabled her to make an incredibly expressive first record. And they also got together as romantic partners briefly. You know, people love to sort of retcon other people's romantic lives and say, like, he broke Joni's heart. Not at all. They were both very polygamous, shall we say, (laughs) at that moment. But she wrote, when she met him, she wrote a song on that first record called The Dawn Treader, which is, it sounds very much like David's music. Joni and David very much influenced each other's approach to open tunings and, you know, these kind of mysterious chords and stuff. That was their thing. And after spending a bunch of time together, David wrote really, you know, some of the most beautiful melodies of his career, including Guinevere, which was 
partly inspired by Joni. Tam High, Song With No Words, Wooden Ships, all those gorgeous early songs written right after being with Joni. But they ran out of patience with each other. And so there's a song on Joni's next album called Clouds, called that song about the Midway. It's basically like (laughs) she was over David. (laughs) And so it was her kiss off song to David, you know. But they not only made beautiful music together, they influenced each other for the rest of their lives. You know, whenever I'm in Los Angeles, I always go to Laurel Canyon because one of my best friends lives there. And I can only like envision what the scene in Laurel Canyon must have been like at that time with David Crosby and Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash and all the rest of the people who live there collaborating and influencing each other. And the Southern California sound really came from there. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever been in a place where something culturally significant was happening right around Absolutely. you? Absolutely. I was at Tulane University in the mid-80s to 1990. And, you know, this is the heyday of the Neville brothers and the meters reunited and the radiators and Dr. John and Irma Thomas and, you know, Snooks Eaglin. You could go on and on and on. And I lived around the corner from Art Neville and Cyril Neville. And so that, like, really, to this day, has influenced me profoundly because Bob Dylan was living around the corner from us recording Oh Mercy with the Nevilles. And, you know, we would see Dylan driving, you know, this ancient black Cadillac down the street to Time Saver to pick up a pack of cigarettes and our minds would be completely blown. Or, you know, one time I drove past Aaron Neville's house and him and Van Morrison were standing on the porch watching the rain. Yeah, well, that was Laurel Canyon. And I was actually very, very touched the other day to hear that people in Laurel Canyon now were blasting David Crosby records out their windows And howling. Did you hear about this? No. They were howling their grief in Laurel Canyon. Oh, wow. I think that's beautiful. Well, let me ask you this. The New York Times had to call you to confirm David's death, didn't they? They did. I can't say that much, but the way that the death was announced in this press release with an email return address that didn't work, there was some communication failure there. And so it put me in the awkward position of having to try to confirm the death of my best friend after learning about it from some guy on Twitter, some random guy on Twitter. David is, I adored him. I adored him for 30 years, you know, and and even beyond that. And so, you know, I log on to Twitter last week and I see Steve Silberman, uh, Yahoo is reporting that David Crosby has died. Reactions? Oh my. Like that's how I learned that my best friend died. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, and not only that, I couldn't figure out what was true at first. I had to make a bunch of calls I shouldn't have had to make. You know, hopefully that will all work out in time. But yeah, it was sad. It was a very sad way to find out. So you had been a fan of David's music and of CSN, CSNY's music. You tell this great story about how you walked into a store one day and Guinevere was playing and it changed your life. But later you really became as you say, you know, best friends with David, you know, David was always known as this person who was a very acute commentator on culture, on politics, on policy, and he had a very sharp mind. But you brought all that out in these conversations you had with him. How did your friendship begin? And how did it take on the countenance of the podcast, which really brought, you know, along with David's newer music, you know, his music since 2014, really brought David to a new audience? Yeah, well, the way that we got to know each other was that when CSN were planning their box set in the early 90s, 
I had not, you know, met them or anything. I had seen them a bunch. And I was, you know, this like super fan. When David was in jail for cocaine, I wrote him a fan letter, you know, and said, I'm so sorry, David, that, you know, this has happened. But I would love to see the text of that letter. Yeah. It was incredibly naive. By the early 90s, I had probably the best collection of David Crosby bootleg tapes of anyone because I was the most obsessed, you know. So when they were planning their box set, they wanted to do a bonus disc of unreleased and rare performances. And so my friend Raymond Foy, who is an art dealer who had worked with Graham on this photo collection, kept saying, well, Steve Silverman says that this is the best performance of that. Steve Silverman says there was a great performance of blah, blah, blah. And so finally they were like, who is this guy? You know, let's get him down here. So Raymond called me actually and said, Steve, Crosby, Stills and Nash want to talk to you. I was working in a restaurant at the time. I gave up my shift. Uh, I took out on a bus, went down to Los Gatos. There were Crosby, Stills and Nash. And it was really, really fun. We planned a bunch of tracks together and at that point, Neil was supposed to be on the box set, but he ended up suddenly changing his mind later, as one does if you're Neil Young. Yeah. You know? So I met David, but it was not like the big culmination of anything because he was pretty guarded. He was sort of an armored guy still because he had gotten out of jail, you know, a few years before and he had been through all manner of, you know, public humiliations around his drug use and had literally, you know, fallen from heaven, basically. So David was guarded. I got along very well with Nash, had fun with Stephen. But what really did it was after that interaction, I was talking to my friend Raymond Foy, who had invited me down there, and I heard the phone ringing in the background one day. And I said, Raymond, do you have to get that? And he said, oh, no, it's just Cross. And I said, what? (laughs) Answer the phone. And he said, no, it's a fax. That guy is a fax addict. And I thought, fax addict? Why doesn't that guy have email? Yeah. You know, I was able to get in touch with David and set him up with his very first email account in an early online community called The Well. Wow. Which was started by Stuart Brand and Larry Brilliant and a bunch of other hippie gurus, in a sense. So I got him on The Well and, you know, I got the first taste of what David's online persona would be. When I said, well, David, you have to choose a username. And, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't put David Crosby in it because then everybody will know it's you. And he said, are you kidding? I want everyone to know it's me. Cros. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, he got on the well. He loved it. He had been, you know, sort of wasting away in the castle of his Woodstock era fame, you know, and not really being able to just talk to people. You know, I haven't said this yet in interviews about him, but one of the things that was true of David was that he was quite lonely a lot. He was a very sensitive guy. He was pretty lonely. And so am I. Now I have my own, you know, fans and whatnot, but fans do not necessarily make you less lonely. You know, basically, we became each other's, you know, friend that we wished we had. And also, you know, because David had this reputation of being difficult and, you know, you even see that wonderful movie by Cameron Crowe and uh, A.J. Eaton, uh, Remember My Name. And, you know, it says, like, he has no friends. Well, actually, he, David had a lot of friends. That's kind of a hype, you know. But because of stuff like that, I would think, well, David must be, like, unbelievably difficult. You know, he's feuding with the other members of CSMY. Like, when is the other shoe going to drop for me? 
Like, when is he going to be an asshole to me? He never was. He never was. Well, and, you know, he talks a lot in that movie and certainly with you in the podcast about how he regretted having these broken relationships with Graham Nash and Neil Young and Stephen Stills. And, you know, I, I felt really sad when he died because, you know, I didn't know if he ever really repaired those relationships. I don't even know if Neil said anything after he died. I know Nash and Stills did and they said nice things, but he never quite got back together with them, did he? Do you know, I'm going to make a major historical correction for you. But I have to be a little bit circumspect because it's not really my role to talk in public about things that are still private. But he was working something out. And in fact, uh, Neil did say something very, very nice about David, and uh, as did Stephen. And, uh, David had no problem with Stephen. They talked all the time. Yes, there was this big feud with Nash, but I predict that if David had been able to stay alive even just a little bit longer, that that would have been remedied and that that karma would have been worked off. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. No, it does. It made me feel a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I perceived him as really feeling that loss. And, you know, one of the ways I thought that he remedied it in some ways is he really brought a bunch of terrific young musicians together to play with in his later years, recorded five incredible studio albums, and last December even released a fantastic live record with the Lighthouse Band. Was he happy when he was surrounded by those folks? Not only was he happy, he was thrilled about that the last time I talked to him. That's been one of the strange things about reading that press release about a long illness. Yeah, his illness apparently a couple of weeks ago, was rehearsing with his third new band, you know, because those albums that you mentioned were recorded by two different super excellent bands of younger musicians. One of them was called The Lighthouse Band with Michael League, Michelle Willis, and Becca Stevens. The other called The Sky Trails Band with his son James Raymond and Michelle Willis and My Lease, a wonderful bass player, and Stevie DeStanislau. So he had two bands going. By the way, the Lighthouse Band had finished yet another album, which nobody's heard yet. It's going to be coming out soon. It's great. What's interesting and kind of beautiful about it, actually, is that it's less David Crosby-centric in a way. He really gave the space to uh, Michelle and Becca and Michael to do their thing. And, you know, he sings on their songs and stuff. But it's really a collaborative band album. It's not just a David Crosby album with them as a backup band. It's really their album as a communal creation. You know, nobody's heard that yet except for a few people. And so David was just thrilled. And then he was going to form yet a new band with Chris Stills, uh, Stephen Stills' son, and James Raymond, and Hutch Hutcherson or Lee Sklar, the incredible bass player on a bunch of James Taylor albums. And they were going to play a gig at the Libero Theater. And you know, there had been reports that David would never play again. I'm too old, blah, blah, blah. And then he was absolutely thrilled that he was going to play again with this new band. So he was full speed ahead. He was not like some invalid lying in bed. He was making records. You can, If you go to Instagram, people like James J. Raymond, his son, you can see like a beautiful recording of the classic David song, Naked in the Rain, with Steve Postel playing guitar, because David did have significant problems in his hands. So he was not going to be able to play guitar on stage anymore, but he could sing and he sounded great. So there was a lot of music that I wish we could have heard. What do you think the thing 
that people need to know about David Crosby? I mean, we know a lot. We know the legendary stuff. We know, you know, about the addictions. We know about the relationships. We know about the great music. I don't know if many people really, truly know how completely great he is or was in, in music because he was so great. You know, you can put him up there with just about anybody in the history of music and he stands very, very tall. But what is it about David personally that people didn't know that they really should know? Here's the thing. So many of the stories, and, you know, there were more stories, you know, this week, were about how difficult he allegedly was or the feuds he was having or he wasn't friends with so-and-so. David was the most avidly, earnestly, wide-rangingly curious person I've ever met. He was fascinated by science. He would send me you know, Hubble telescope photographs all the time. Uh, he was fascinated by politics. He was fascinated by craft. That's something that I learned by going to his house, really. He loved well-made things, whether they were sailboats or guitars or songs. He was very intent upon craft, and he was very, very curious. And his friends were wide-ranging. Spider Robinson, the science fiction author, was one of his big friends. Marsha Garces, who was Robin Williams' widow, was one of his friends. They would go diving together. David had a mind that was very restless and wanted to know everything about everything from the people who did things well. And so, you know, he was fascinated by stuff like flying and he loved his Tesla, although he had problems with what Elon Musk was doing to Twitter. Let's put it that way. Because yeah, David was a huge yeah. Twitter guy. Huge Twitter guy. Right. That's why David was so active online. He loved to be in the mix. Like he was rarely out of the news. You know, it's like there was a, David Crosby would be trending like every other week. And he just he wanted to be engaged with people. He never turned away from the world, no matter how dark the world seemed to get which it certainly did get during COVID and, and Trump, for sure. And we're still, you know, trying to get out from under those things. But people think, oh, yeah, David Crosby, I heard he was an asshole or something. He was incredibly sweet and had a very, very hungry mind. He wanted to take in the world, reflect upon it, understand it, and then make beautiful things. You know, one of the things that I hope people really take from David's life is that he was always one of the musicians that wasn't afraid to speak his mind about social issues, political issues. I remember him saying either through his Rolling Stone column or on Twitter, I think he talked to you about this a lot too, was that the musicians of today didn't tend to take political positions and they didn't tend to comment on society and things that were happening, maybe as much as he would have wanted them to. Is that something that you remember about him? Well, I know that something that frustrated him was that he was unable to compose a song like Ohio. You know, when Ohio came out, CSNY recorded Ohio and got it out within a month. You know, it was kind of like Twitter, except with a song instead of a tweet. So it was like the news. And in a way, what Crosby was mourning was not just, you know, why doesn't somebody else write Ohio or something? It was the loss of a platform for musicians to speak from in a way that caused change. And in this world of, you know, Spotify and when musicians could barely make a living, had to tour, and then that was shut down by COVID. 
he felt sorry for younger musicians that they didn't have a platform that gave them a global audience like the one that CSNY had when they recorded Ohio. Steve, this has been incredibly illuminating and I think, you know, healing for a lot of people who will listen to it, who really love David Crosby, you know, and didn't get to have a relationship with him like you did. But through you, I think a lot of people will really continue to understand David Crosby and his contributions to the world. So thank you so much for helping us scratch the surface of getting to the truth of the matter about the great David Crosby. Thank you so much. I'm very, very honored to have been here, and I really appreciate you doing this. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 